Hi, this is Maggie Rose, and you're listening to Salute the Songbird on Osiris Media. I started this podcast to showcase women in music who inspire me and who I want folks everywhere to know about. My guests are icons in contemporary music, independent artists, studio musicians, hit songwriters, and power players behind the scenes. All of them challenging the status quo, respecting the hustle, and leading the way for women following in their footsteps. Salute the Songbird is a platform for women in music to share their stories and let their voices be heard. And everyone has a seat at the table. Welcome. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Salute the Songbird. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. And big thank you for your feedback and motivation throughout this first season of Salute the Songbird. It has been one of the great privileges of my career to put the show together for you, especially during this time where I really needed connection with these amazing women and with you, my dear listener. So thank you for making this such a wonderful experience for me and for being a part of the conversation. Good news, we're booking conversations for season two. So we all have a second season of Salute the Songbird to anticipate. I'm very excited about that. And another thing I would like to mention is that I'm putting together a reunion show of sorts, Salute the Songbirds, here at Nashville City Winery, and more details to come on that, but I'm gathering together some of season one's first guests so we can all catch up, celebrate each other, talk about what everyone's been up to and what cool things they've been working on, and it's going to be something really special for both the live socially distanced audience that's there and for everyone who's streaming at home. So keep your eyes and ears peeled for more info on that. It really feels like the fog is lifting. I'm starting to book shows. And I know this is one year later from when all of this began, but I haven't been this hopeful. And having my new album coming out in August, Have a Seat, with the potential to have some tour dates around that to support this music is just a prospect that I am so excited about and haven't really allowed myself to become excited about until recently. Now, today's guest is a good friend of mine, an exceptionally talented artist and songwriter. She's an East Nashvilleian as well, like myself. She just released an album called It's a Beautiful Day and I Love You on February 12th, 2021. And I was lucky enough to be able to preview that album with her at my house before this whole pandemic began. And just like her lyrics, Gillette is incredibly vulnerable. She reveals everything generously with tremendous insight that she's gathered throughout all these experiences she's been through. She's hyper self-aware and just really exciting to watch and listen to. She has a huge heart. And even though I know her well, I feel like this conversation was the first time I was able to hear her full account of what her story has been like. So join me in getting to know and getting to appreciate the one and only Gillette Johnson. Johnson, welcome to Salute the Songbird. Thank you. I salute you. You're one of my favorite people, period, but also just one of the best artists out there and songwriters. So for anyone listening who has not yet met Gillette, I 
I'm so happy that you finally are getting that in your life. But she's an incredible songwriter. She started playing piano and writing her own music at a very early age. You were eight years old. When I started writing, yeah. Do you come from a musical family? In a sense, I do. My dad really likes to sing, and my mom really likes to sing, too. My dad, though, like was in the Princeton Tiger Tones. <laughs> he likes to say he went to Princeton back when um, they let anybody in. <laughs> and so he was always singing a lot when I was a little kid, and he used to sing to me the children's books that he read but sung them. So he like made up melodies to all of them, and then I think... Probably that was part of what got me writing songs so young because I I think I was kind of always writing songs because I just did that too um, because I modeled after my dad. But also my mom's side of the family has a lot of talent. Like um, her uncle is Alan Arkin, who's uh, an actor. Yeah. And he actually, when he was like in the salad days trying to, pay rent he wrote songs as his means to get by so that he could be an actor like jingles no not I don't think it was jingles I think it was like songs like (laughs) so what you think of as a job that wouldn't pay your bills as a means to do your dream was what he did um but he ended up you know succeeding as an actor and and then my mom also like her cousin wrote for Broadway and stuff, but I never really was close with anybody. They weren't in my life, that that side of the family. So maybe it was just some kind of like inherited weird thing. Maybe that enhanced your dad's appreciation for your gift because you weren't able to be influenced by proxy of your other thespian relatives. But I feel there are a lot of really sweet anecdotes that you've shared in particular about your father, either just by stories you've told about practicing for recitals when you were younger, or even songs that you've written that have nuggets of your dad in them. Where is he now? Well, he's in New York with my mom. They're still married. They've been married for 40 plus years. Wow. Um, Yeah. Both of my parents were really supportive from the beginning and Mm -hmm. they were as a team and they were individually. I still turn to them as a form of like emotional support for being in this industry. And I feel really, really lucky that that is there. You know, they were cool with me leaving high school when I was 15 to make a record in Brooklyn to travel into, I didn't live in the city. So I lived in this town called Pound Ridge, which was Mm -hmm. like really small town, an hour North of New York city. And they let me get on the train and then the subway and then another subway every day as a young teenager. Wow. (laughs) And like, helped me convince my school that I was responsible enough to get all the work done without ever actually going to school. So for three years, I went to school one day a year to meet my teachers. And then all of my correspondences with them were remote. And I didn't have to do like kind of the 
bullshit. Like I just did the tests and the essays and graduated with a pretty good GPA. And that was why NYU like let me in. Like they wouldn't have let me in if I literally dropped out of school, but I kind of dropped out of school. I just pretended like I was still there. Oh my gosh. That's (laughs) kind of remarkable because I was going to ask before the story, like, were you a good student and how was it to like deviate, but I mean, that was just, you just laid it all out. That is a very unconventional schooling experience. It's like you were doing the 2020 virtual thing before it became a necessity. Yes, completely. And I'll tell you what, I cheated. Mm -hmm. How so? I cheated. Like I looked online for answers to things that I didn't know. I mean, I couldn't cheat and write essays that got me good grades. But like, my parents were fine with it. I was just like, I don't really care about this algorithm or this thing that I need to learn. I am super busy writing songs and going into the studio. And it's a weird thing. I mean, I know it's something to like, usually kind of be like, not proud of. I'm not proud of it. But I also just like, for some reason, my teenage brain, and even earlier when I was younger than a teenager, I was just kind of like, there are things that I care about learning that I'm going to pay attention to. And then there are things that I feel like aren't really contributing to my path. And I don't really, uh, I feel like it's a distraction. And I, I think, I think about public school and private school and school in general a lot because of that, because I was really, really lucky. And it was really rare that for whatever reason, I was able to specifically choose how I wanted my passions to be focused on and not have to be like a slave to remembering dates and numbers that I wouldn't use. Right. You're like, this is taking up valuable real estate in my creative brain. Yeah. And I mean, with that, I definitely was like, I had something to prove. Like I I remember a long period of time in my life where I really wanted people to think I was smart. Mm Mm-hmm. And it took a while for me to kind of just be like, you know what, I got my own education and my brain works just fine. But it, yeah, I mean, it was like, it was unconventional. Absolutely. I I had no idea. And I mean, I know that you dropped out of NYU and I dropped out of Clemson, which is a great school, but didn't necessarily have maybe the same tools to lend me for the pursuit that you and I both ended up taking. Yeah. I guess it was just your ability to discern like what's worthwhile to advance you as an artist versus maybe I don't need the same curriculum that's been handpicked for everybody else. Yeah. And you know, I think because I think you and I are proof that probably a lot of kids have that ability in some shape or form. And it gets labeled as all different kinds of things. Like if there's a lack of passion or a lack of work ethic or something, but In reality, we all have things that light us up. And Mm -hmm. if we're not being lit up, we check out. We don't want to show up to something that doesn't like inspire us. And I really hope that there is some kind of like cultural shift in schools eventually Mm -hmm. in this country where kids are more able to make those kinds of decisions. And the pressure is off of just having to like conform. So you have It's a Beautiful Day and I Love You that was released on February 12th. And it is just such a beautiful album. It's just great work. I want to talk about all those parts of your story, though, that that led up to 
this album that you've just released before um, we really dive into that. So we've dropped out of NYU. What were you doing in Brooklyn? Like what describe your day as an NYU student before you decided that you wanted to leave? Well, I started going into Brooklyn when I was 15. So it was before NYU. And that just kind of became my life. Like I started commuting into the city earlier than that. And then at 15, I started making an album and I had a manager and I had like a team and they all ended up being some damn crooks. Let me tell you, it was a really like, you're just typical, like, oh, bad stuff can happen in the music industry to young green people. How did you get linked up with these unseemly folks? When I was 13, maybe I started earlier, but I know that I was 13 when I met the manager because I was playing weekly in this jazz club in the town over from where we lived. And I would play like two hour sets of original music. Oh my God. Take a break and then do another one. And I don't know how the people who were in the restaurant possibly endured it because it was just a 12 (laughs) and 13 year old. Like, I mean, I did it for many years. So, because I guess I met the manager when I was 15. So I remember, okay, I started when I was 13. I did it for two years. And I was in the middle of a set and this guy comes up to me. He had just been like holding court at a table. Mm-hmm. of 10 people he is a big bald guy with a goatee and he comes up to me at the piano and says I'd like to buy you a drink and I was like I would love one but my parents are sitting right there and I'm 15 right. and he was like oh okay sorry about that um I make movies do you want to maybe talk about putting one of your songs in one of my movies and I was like and yeah. at this point you're probably just so wide-eyed and thinking like Oh, this is the answer. Oh, of course. I started showcasing for labels when I was 12. So for people who don't understand what showcasing is, it's basically where, in the conventional sense, you offer yourself up on a plate to have labels hopefully get into a bidding war over this fresh meat that is showcasing like the first 10 songs that they're ready to share with the world. So you're going through this crazy process at such an early age, being subjected to scrutiny and criticism and just this awareness that you're selling yourself as a product. I was happy to do it. It's like you said, youth makes that stuff easier because you don't really have anything that reminds you of a Mm -hmm. past trauma of an experience that went wrong. You're just like, you're just present to it. I mean, I remember those experiences way more clearly than the ones that came after in my life. So, okay, I'm going to try to not get lost in the weeds here. So this guy comes up to me. I think that at that point I was green, of course, but I also had been through a cycle already of like working with managers, finding out that it wasn't a good fit and maybe they were kind of not the best people in the world and then coming out of it. So I had a little bit of wisdom. He comes up to me. I go tell my parents and he's like, let's all have a meeting together. Eventually we have a meeting. I go and live in France for the summer, come back. We have a meeting and he's like, listen, I'm making this movie. We'll put the song in the movie. We see the movie. It's not a very good movie. He's not really a very good movie director. It's (laughs) kind of just like an indie bullshit thing, Mm. but we're just kind of like, yeah, okay, whatever. And then he tags onto it. But by the way, I have a lot of music industry contacts, and I really think that I could help this 
child get to the next level. And in order to do that, we need to make a record and we need to shop it. And she probably needs to leave school. And I was like, yeah, (laughs) I hate, I like, I was being bullied by like mean girls. Like I was like not having a fun time in school. Because of your interest in music? I think it was part of it. Like I didn't really fit in very much because I was just always off making music and I didn't really get the jokes that people were saying because I missed the parties because I was writing instead. But then also there was like just some girl stuff like, you know, boys and whatever. So I was down to leave school. I did leave school. We agreed to work with this guy. He introduced us to these producers that said they wanted to work with me. And I'm not going to get into the dark. It gets pretty dark. So Mm -hmm. basically taken advantage of in any way that a person at that age could be taken advantage of. So I find my way out of it eventually, thankfully. And my parents and I are like kind of survivors. And I'm like 17. And I decide not to go back to school. Like I had enough to, all of a sudden I had free time. I could start going back to my high school and finish senior year with my peers. And I just didn't want to do it. I was like on antidepressants and like, couldn't kind of get out of the couch kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So that was when I started uh, shopping again for (laughs) record deals. Right. And that's when I uh, shopped uh, some demos to Epic. What was your mental fitness? Not able to return to high school, understandably so, especially when you've already set yourself on this path. But was it just because you felt like that was the natural next step? Okay, let's get back on the horse and pursue another record label because you had music in you that hadn't been realized or and it must have been an incredibly trying time. It was. We met a lawyer who took pity on us and was really mad that we had been through what we had been through. And he believed in me and he was a really funny fit because he was Liza Minnelli. He was Liza Minnelli's lawyer and Art Garfunkel's lawyer. Amazing. And all of these people who were so old. <laughs> and but he was very like, talented. Very talented. And he was 85. So it was a really funny thing because I was so young. Um, but he took pity on me and he introduced me to some people in the industry that then led me to like shopping for deals and I think had I not had something like some glimmer of like something going on, it would have been a lot harder. Like, I think that's always been the default for me. Like I can bounce back pretty easily. Mm -hmm. I just need to feel like there's some hope and and it's always related to music. Right. But everything is everything. I feel like you would have circumvented and figured out a way to keep making music and your talent would have beckoned you to, get back into it but also you're right it's just a culmination of the people you meet the fact that your parents weren't reluctant to let you go back into that environment and that they had faith in you to release you into the wild again so to speak is pretty tremendous because I feel like a lot of parents out there and I'm sure it probably was agonizing to them to just even think about the prospect of you having your heart broken or being mistreated again but that's such a big sign of love that they encourage you to do that again. I think that's pretty awesome. 
It is super awesome. And thank you for saying that because it's something that I need to remember too. Like I was so at the center of it when the the worst stuff happened that I couldn't kind of absorb what what it was like to be my parent. And the fact that they didn't go, okay, you're never doing this again. (laughs) Yeah, you're going back to school. And then you're going to go to college. This is the worst industry in the world is amazing. And I and they've never wavered on that. I've called them many, many times and been really defeated. Like a, a couple years ago, I remember talking to my dad on the phone about thinking about going back to school and becoming a therapist. Mm. And eventually I realized that would probably be harder (laughs) than making something out of myself in the music business. But even still, I remember how I was so surprised. I thought my dad was going to be like, okay, you know, whatever, whatever makes you happy, kid, Mm -hmm. because that's always been kind of my parents deal. They've always said Mm -hmm. to me, like, if you just end up singing in the shower, that's fine. But my dad, I could hear him being really upset. He was like, yeah, he was like, but you're so good. Like, I mean, like he was fighting me on it. Mm -hmm. And I'm so grateful for that because we just need that. (laughs) So you sign with Epic. So I made the record, put it out, then ended up whatever. Everything blew up, met this attorney. He introduced me to a big agent at CAA. And that big agent introduced me to Praz from the Fugees. Okay. And Praz had never heard my music, but he decided that I should be on his imprint at Epic Records. And so that was an interesting little detour because we didn't really know each other. But all of a sudden, I was like... Praz was like, my dude. And Praz introduced me to Peter Malkin at Epic, who was Vanessa Carlton's A&R guy. And Peter ended up being like this person that I really got to know. And he was signing me to Epic. They flew me out to LA, hooked me up with all these songwriters. And it was like a weird thing because I felt like I often walked into rooms where songs were already written and they were just like, Uh hey, sing this you're part of it. And I was like, that's not how I write songs. Um, But I ended up meeting Peter Zizzo, who actually, we wrote a song actually together and had a real connection musically and as friends. And um, after we wrote together a little, like very briefly after we wrote together, I got a call from Peter Malkin at Epic saying, hey, so listen, Rick Rubin just took over the company and they're firing everybody. And I don't, really know what's going to happen with you. Like, I know Charlie, who was the president of the record, Charlie Walk, like, really likes you, but we don't really know what's happening to Charlie. And uh, no one else really knows you, but I'm fired. So I'll try to help as much as I can. No idea. And then it was just like, gone. And that was really disappointing. I was, you know, I, I, I cried a lot. But I also, at that point, had already gone through so many (laughs) heartbreaks with being in the music industry that I was a little bit calloused about it and was like, well, yeah, Mm. okay, so that's what it is. So that was when I 
decided that I was going to apply to college. And I mean, part of me was like, I'm just applying to college because I kind of want to do something that other people my age are doing. I don't really think I'm going to go to college, but I at least want to experience applying to college and just whatever. So I applied to four colleges. I applied to NYU, WashU, Berkeley, and Occidental in LA. And I got into all of them somehow. But when I got the call from NYU, it's funny, they like, they called me and they were like, hey, so you're invited to the lunch for like, you know, accepted students. So please let us know. And I was like, what? I'm accepted. (laughs) That's how you found out. And I was so excited. And I think it was because I really wanted to live in New York City. Like I had Mm -hmm. spent so much of my life already existing there. And I really wanted to do it as an adult and like without having to take the train back late at night. And right. I'd always, it's like you like, got so many tastes of it, but you didn't really get to be one with New York City. Exactly. So, um, so I said yes. I, I I accepted, and I went to NYU and felt like such a fish out of water because I didn't mm. care about what I was learning at all. And I mean, the thing is, like, I look back on it, I didn't even think about applying to the Clive Davis School of Music, which was intact when I applied to college. Mm-hmm at NYU, I was just like, how do I have as much control over my schedule so that I can have my music career as physically possible? And I found the Gallatin School of Individualized Study, which was where the Olsen twins went. And I was like, if they can have their careers and go to college, I can certainly do it. So I went to Gallatin, I studied like the most random things. And I started getting like, opportunities to be involved in music that we're getting in the way of going to class. And I convinced all my teachers again to like, let it be okay that I wasn't going to class, but not knock me for it. So I wasn't going like by my second. I have a lot of people pursuing you for your strategy on how you convinced your teachers at two points in your life to let you attend without attending. I don't know why that trust was there again for me. And I, it's, it was, it was silly really because I wasn't really learning. It's silly in an incredibly impressive way because yet you still, you managed to maintain the balance of it all until you didn't want to. anymore. Well, yeah. I mean, the thing was, I wasn't really, I wasn't part of it again. So I found myself in this situation where I was having to pretend that I knew that I was keeping up with everything. But really, I just was absent from school. And by the time my second semester came, I was like, I can't do this. NYU is like one of the most expensive schools in the country. This is insane. Like, thankfully, they had a program where you could just pause. I paused for two years until I dropped out. So Peter continued to be a friend of mine. He helped nurture my artistry. I I would pop in and out of his studio and just like play him a bunch of songs that I had written and he would just tell me that he liked them and that was enough like all I needed was somebody who I trusted who loved what I was doing and told me that he loved it I was kind of doing a lot of random stuff like playing a lot of shows and working with a couple of house producers in Brooklyn and that was kind of a weird fit, but <laughs> I was just, I was just trying to be open. Yeah. Um, and then Peter called me one day and said that he was writing a lot of pop music and 
thought that he and I would be a good team. So I went back to his studio and we wrote a pop song and then we looked at each other and we were like, this is stupid. Let's make a Gillette Johnson record. And so then we, oh, and I had written a song. Well, maybe I hadn't written it yet. I hadn't written it yet. Okay. So we were, we were working on this very particular batch of songs and he and he brought in his friend, Mike Mangini to co-produce. And then I wrote a song called Cameron, which is about a young trans kid and Peter's child actually is trans. And, um, mm-hmm. it was, it was kind of inspired by Peter's child and, and his journey. And mm-hmm. that song, well, I played that song for Samantha Cox at BMI. And then she was like, I, I'm going to, help you do this because I really need feel like this song needs to have a life beyond just you. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I got signed to wind up records because of Cameron, the song that I wrote wind up records is based where, well, they are no longer based anywhere, but uh-huh. <laughs> they were based in New York. They were, <laughs> this is funny. So they were an active rock label for a long time. They got, all their money from being <clears throat> Creed's record label. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So Creed and Evanescence and Seether were their wow. main acts. And I'm seeing a pattern here sonically. Maybe. Sonically, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Slightly different, slightly different genre than uh, what I had ever been told that I fit into. Um, or that you'd ever imagine yourself to fit into. Sure. Totally. But it was a time at the label where the label was really changing. The president of the label at the time ended up sadly taking his own life. And so there was like Uh new administration at the top. And uh, Greg Wattenberg, who was the guy who signed me, was the co-president of the label. And he, I sat like this far away from him in his studio and belted songs in front of him. And then he was like, yeah, okay, well, if you can do that, then you can probably do this. And um, he signed me and we made a record and it was really cool. I started touring and we went to radio and did all the stuff and lots of stuff I'd never done before. And I knew that this was happening at the time, which made it really hard, the ground was moving under my feet the whole time at the label. So Mm -hmm. Greg was really unhappy being a president of a label. He really, he had been a producer songwriter his whole career and this administrative E role just didn't fit him. So he left, he was my A&R guy. He was like the president of the label. He was my champion. He left like four months before my Mm -hmm. record came out. And I didn't know, but everybody else at the label had kind of not known about me. Like he was really protective of our thing. And as a result, I was like about to put out a record with a label that had no idea what the record sounded like, what I sounded like, what I wanted. Like it was, I had to rebuild relationships with people that I thought I had already. So the record came out and I think as a result of a lot of there was a lot of mismanagement at that label. Sure. You didn't get the push that you deserved. I mean, you, you needed people who had skin in the game and who were going to champion this piece of work that you just made. Very disappointing. And I had those people and I'm still friends with those people, Mm -hmm. but what they will say and what I knew 
was that the label was a sinking ship, that it wasn't managed correctly. And everybody knew that it was going to be the end at some point. And so this record was out and then constantly there was this feeling of like, does anybody here really believe that we're going to wake up tomorrow and there's going to be a ship anymore? So it survived longer than I expected. But meanwhile, I... Did that inspire a song? Yeah. um, The song that I put on my second record, Bunny, is about... Oh, we're going to get to Bunny. Then I won't spoil it. But yeah, Bunny is definitely a reflection of that time. I was still on the label, still in New York. Peter and Mike were managing me. They were my producers. And that was like not there. That's an example. Another example of like, you think it's a great idea. Because Peter Zezo, who was very instrumental and in, he wanted you to not do a lot of co-writing because you were so young and impressionable and you had a very galvanized voice that he wanted to protect but so he's your collaborator he's writing songs with you you made this record together now he's in an administrative position like it just becomes really hard to carve out like what is it that everyone's responsibilities are and you're you need that to be well-oiled machine especially when you're releasing music there's so much competition yeah. And they had never managed before. So there were just a lot of things that the passion was there. But you're the guinea pig. Yeah. The, the ability to go from point A to point B. I just didn't have people on my team who knew how to do that. Sure. And we were like charting on Hot AC and like had TV and stuff. Like it was happening in some capacity, but without a team that knows that landscape well enough, you can't make anything of it. So, and meanwhile, I was touring and my record was so heavily produced in a way that was so appropriate for the record. It was amazing, but impossible to replicate live without a million people and or tracks. And I really didn't want to play with tracks. That's a thing. Yeah. You don't want to disconnect. That's too hard to overcome with the produced record and the live show. Yeah. And, and I love playing. I just love playing the piano alone. Like that, that really is my comfort zone. And so I was touring just playing the piano alone. Also less overhead too. Any label should be happy about that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it was impossible to do it any other way. So I, I was playing this really heavily produced record, just piano vocal all over the country and then just had so many people come up to me after and be like, that sounded so different than I expected it to. And I really loved it. Like I heard the record and I really loved the record, but this is a different thing. I want to hear what Gillette Johnson sounds like, like this. So that kind of got me in this headspace of like, I need to make a record that sounds like me, like for real, like that people hear and then they go to my show and I'm the same person. So I had parted ways with Peter and Mike and Wind Up was helping me find producers. And then Dave Cobb's name came up and I was really, really wanted it to be him. And he went for it.
Dave Cobb is so legendary and he's, he's been a part of so many great albums that we've all loved like Stapleton and Randy Carlisle. And um, he works with a ton of artists, people who are just getting their start. But did you just kind of cold call him or who, who was the liaison? My A&R guy at the time was friends with Dave's manager. So it was like a very industry e connection. Like mm-hmm. it wasn't just this, it wasn't like the romantic tale of like writing him a letter Right. You know, well, that um, never happens, really. I mean, it maybe it happens, but but th- I was definitely in a position at that time where I had more options um, mm-hmm. because I was signed to a label and they had some power still at that point. But also, so I had also been touring with my boyfriend at the time. Mm hmm. And he's a multi-instrumentalist, really, really talented guy. He His like main instrument is the pedal steel, but he can play anything. And he was really influential on me. He was a huge classic country and Americana fan. Mm-hmm. And we started playing shows that kind of sounded like that. And mm-hmm. I stopped playing songs from my last record entirely and was only playing new songs. And we sounded like an Americana duo. He sang harmony. He played pedal steel. I started singing like Emmy Lou Harris. Like I became a different person. Wow. And also my voice was changing. I wasn't maybe taking care of it the way I thought I was. So I was straining a little bit and then people started telling me I sounded like Stevie Nicks. So then just this entirely different character came out and it it felt like me, but it was entirely different from the record that I had made. Mm -hmm. So when I met Dave, I'd made all these demos with my ex-boyfriend and he, I think, was a huge part of why Dave wanted to work with me because my ex-boyfriend spoke Dave's language a lot better than I did. Like he, he played these really like classic Americana parts, you know, just like flushed these songs out in a really beautiful way. And then we didn't really jive that well towards the end. And I went to make the record with Dave alone. And Mm -hmm. it was an interesting thing because all of a sudden I was here with Dave and without my ex-boyfriend and I was like, okay, I just need to show up as me. Like, what is Gillette now? Like, I've spent the last two years showing up as Gillette with this other man and knowing deep inside I wasn't really being me. I was kind of being me, but really, like, I wasn't fully sitting in myself. And I showed up, I walked off the plane in Nashville, and I was like, I have no idea if I believe in myself, if I can stand up on my own. I wrote all these songs by myself because that's what I do, but I don't know if I can even sing anymore. Like I, after living in LA, it was so dry. Like I, Mm -hmm. my voice had like been cut in half and I was just so scared and so intimidated by Dave because I met Dave once in person, talked to him once on the phone and that was it. He doesn't like to pick songs before you record them. He doesn't even like to tell you what his favorites are. Like you show up and he's got a list and he won't show it to you. He'll just say, of these three songs, which one do you want to record? At least that's the way he worked with me. Here's another funny part of this. I'd send him a batch of like 35 songs that he listened to. 
And then I sent him another batch of 35 songs. Oh my gosh. But something happened where he like didn't see the email or like the link was wrong. So he never heard the second batch of 35 songs. <laughs> and I, I was like, we were recording, we were like halfway through making the record. I was like, it's really interesting. Cause like, you know, I really like all the ones that were that were playing, and uh, but they're all from the first batch. I mean, I guess I guess that was like the time when I was really plugged in. And he was like, "What are you talking about? How far into the process were you?" We had like two two days of recording left, <gasps> and I was like, "Wait, what? You didn't hear any?" <laughs> Stop it. Well, maybe we had more because well, we recorded like I think only two of them were from the second batch. Yeah. Was part of the reason that you hadn't brought up the second batch of songs sooner because you were feeling a little intimidated still or the nerves and Oh yeah. I was just I was just completely like wanting him and everyone else to like me and like I was putting them liking me before making the record that I wanted to make. But we ended up making a record that I'm really proud of. And I, you know, I made the decision to defer to Dave and to say, I don't know which songs are better because I am not good at having objectivity. So I'm going to let the ones that speak to him be the ones that make the record. I mean, he would give me like, he would give me like three options and I would say, okay, let's do that one. Cause that's the one that I feel the most strongly about. But I was not like, I wasn't like we're recording this and this and this and this. This is just so eye opening because I mean, I love that record. And when I listen to the sequencing of it, it's amazing, but just starting with the song Bunny that we've already referenced. I mean, it's it's haunting. The arrangement is very minimal, but it is so clearly like your love letter or hate letter to the industry that you've been in. And it is powerful and it just kind of, it, it demands the listener's attention. And I imagine you almost like snarling in the studio to to record whatever it is that you wanted to record but you were able to still get that across with the album while still being someone who's had their own reservations i just think that that duality is so awesome and i think that this is a, a more likely a woman thing and the context of what situation you were in in your personal life and moving suddenly to nashville like that's immense pressure and then to tell one of the biggest producers in the game, especially like in a year where his career was exploding. Yeah. Exactly what it is you want to do and still managing even with those insecurities to make the record that you made is pretty astonishing because it feels powerful. Like I think it should be required listening for anyone who wants to be an artist. <laughs> they have to listen to that record. Oh, wow. Um, for the lyrical content, for sure. Bunny, I mean, there's, there's lyrics that just give me chills from the 2017 record. All I ever see in you is me. And it sounds like someone who's been through some shit and is ready to like say exactly what they want to say. But even in those records, you have moments like you're describing. I wasn't bending to anyone's pop ear. Like I wasn't, I wasn't trying to write songs for other people in that sense. Mm -hmm. I was trying to write the best songs that I could 
the pool that was being picked from was me in a place being defiantly myself as best as I could figure out who that was at the time. Right. So it wasn't like my label was like, uh, I, we don't hear the song yet or the songs yet. You need to go right with these people. Like I was fortunate with wind up in the sense that they really believed in who I was and never pressured me to like, write different kinds of songs or write with other people. They were always very hands-off. Right. And that's not common, I don't think. So when we finished that record with Dave, we were it was a three-week period block that we had blocked off, and we finished early. And the president of Wind Up and my A&R guy at the time and the, pre, uh, the president's son all flew to Nashville and listened to the record with us in the control room at RCA Studio A, you know, the famous studio on Music Row where Dolly Parton recorded Jolene and I Will Always Love You in the same two hours. Um, and they were all crying in the control room and we went out to a fancy dinner and then they left and I flew back to LA and packed my car and moved to Nashville. And I was like, okay, I'm in Nashville and I just made a record with Dave Cobb and the president of my label was crying. So that means that he believes in it. And I've been through all this stuff, but I'm finally being the me that I think that I am right now. And then I heard nothing from my label for months. Oh my God. And I kept reaching out and going like, hey, when do you think we're going to put out a record? I didn't have managers because I had fired my managers before all of this and didn't know how to find another one that I felt would be a good fit because that's a really hard path. And, you know, I kept kind of like, kind of meekly like tapping on the door like, hey, aren't we supposed to be like doing stuff for this? <laughs> and meanwhile, everybody who worked on the record would like every now and then like call me and be like, hey, what the fuck's going on? Like, this is a great record. You should be like on Allen right now. And they're all used to working really big records. So mm-hmm. I was like, you guys don't understand. Like, it's okay. Like, I'm not Chris Stapleton. Like, <laughs> But really what was happening is nothing was happening and I didn't know how to change it. And what I didn't know is WindUp had been bought by Concord, which is a big company that owns a lot of labels. That had already happened. But what I didn't know is... Fantasy and Rounder. Yeah. yeah. Uh, And Rounder is where I ended up eventually. But WindUp was about to be dissolved. And no one told me. And no one told me until October, which was about six months later. Why on earth would they keep that information from you? Were they afraid? Were they trying to salvage the situation? Like This was the way that it operated. There was so much secrecy and so much like under the table stuff going on, like so much weird money stuff going on. That I got a call from my the president of the label who I was intending to talk to. Like, we were supposed to talk about our publishing deal because I had given them my publishing. It was a 360 deal. 360 means a piece of everything. I'm just the little, like, footnotes in our conversation. Yeah, he called me and he was like, so wind-up is gone. I'm not going to go to Concord, so I'm gone. And pretty much everyone at wind up is going to be gone. So I'm going to try to help you 
navigate this as best as I can. We'll find another label in the Concord infrastructure that fits well, and I'll make sure I will fight for you. I will make sure that you're okay. And if we can't find the right fit, I'm going to get you your record back. And I have never talked to him again. He completely dropped off the face of the earth after that conversation. So I was terrified. I tried calling him so many times and I never got a response. And everyone that I knew was gone. I didn't know anyone. Unbelievable. I didn't know anyone at Concord. Not one. Well, maybe I knew one person who I had like met once at the corner of the wind up office who was like new to wind up before I left New York. And then and then I just was like in my mind, like, what like, what do I do? Like, if I, I can't leave, because my contract is super binding. And also, if I leave, I don't get to put out this record I just made. Right. I mean, through a confluence of Thankfully, people who I love who helped me, some of whom who left wind up and still were like my champions. Mm -hmm. I found a manager and ended up at Rounder. And Rounder was going through a lot of change at the same time, too, but I didn't know that. I mean, it's (laughs) like like you, every label you get. See, this is everyone thinks that's the golden ticket. You get your label deal, but there's so much disruption happening behind the scenes and like instability yeah with every outfit you were with yeah so rounder put out this record and um the president of the label i think was already kind of one foot out the door but i didn't know that my attorney at the time john strom was trying to get me out of my deal because it was a really bad deal um i was a half a million dollars unrecouped So no matter how well I could have done, I would not have seen money and really been able to survive. And my publishing was tied up with that deal. So I couldn't go and try to get a publishing deal. The terms in my deal never specified an advance for any record beyond my first record. So I wasn't making any money. And it was a six record deal at a 12% royalty rate. There was no streaming language. It was a terrible deal. And yeah. my lawyer was like, uh, we need to try to get you out. Maybe Rounder's cool, but before we like decide on Rounder, let's try to get you out. And then he came back to me. He was like, yeah, I, I, I can't. Like it, Concord is so powerful and you're in so deep. There's no reason for them to want to help you so i i was with rounder at no fault of your own you were really screwed over and yet you've made some really beautiful music after all of these things have transpired thanks (laughs) i mean shit i'm just sitting here like uh, okay sorry there's a happy ending there's a happy ending i know there is (laughs) so john continues to be my lawyer. We put out this record. It's a very short album cycle. There's not a lot going on around the record. Uh, My managers and I aren't really a great fit. I fire them like midway through the album cycle. And then I just kind of felt depressed for a while because I knew that Concord wasn't enthused with me because the record didn't do very well and they had inherited my debt. So... I got a call from John Strom and he said, listen, 
don't tell anybody, but I'm about to be the president of Rounder. I like John. He's part of Lemonheads. He's amazing. He's a musician and an attorney and a label head. John is a huge part of why there's a happy ending to this story. So he was like, this is going to go one of two ways. And I want you to figure out what's best for you. I'm going to be the president at a label that I intend to change pretty dramatically. I'm not going to have a lot of leverage when I get in there because I've never worked at a label before and I'm going to need to prove myself and you're in really deep. So they're not going to want me to walk right in and say, Gillette Johnson needs to make another record and we're going to spend a bunch of money on it. But what I can do is prove myself for like a year and then say, Gillette Johnson needs to make another record and we're going to spend a bunch of money on her. Or you can get out of your deal at any time and I'll make it happen. And my mind was like, oh, well, I'm going to stay because John's going to be there and he is he's my protector now and he loves what I do and everything's going to be okay. And it's hard to get a record deal. So why would I leave one if I have a champion up top? So I spent about a year making songs in the studio with someone that John introduced me to who I love named Gregory Latimer. And John came over a few times and like freaked out listening to stuff, but just never kind of pushed the go button. And I just kind of was like, I don't know if I can wait any longer. I've been sitting on music for a long time again, and Mm -hmm. it really hurts. And even if I do make this record with Rounder and John, my publishing's tied up. I'm still in that deal. Like, it's not going to build me the career that I want to have. Right. So Whitaker helped me. Husband. My husband, yeah. I mean, we he's he's worked in the music industry for a long time and was is friends with John Strom. And the three of us met and we talked about it. And we all said, yeah, it's better for me to be gone. And if anyone else has any familiarity with the record industry, it is not easy to leave a record deal. No. No matter how much the label likes or doesn't like you, you pay Mm. some serious money and some serious tears to get out of a record deal. And John gave me the biggest gift of just letting me walk away without anything. I didn't have to pay anybody. I mean, my masters are still owned by Concord, but... I have all my publishing back because the publishing deal was contingent upon the record deal. And as a result, as soon as I got the email from John that I was out, I just opened up. Like I started writing differently. I started really working in ways that I had, like I've always been a really hardworking songwriter, but I get overwhelmed by the business stuff sometimes and avoid avoid really getting into the nitty gritty of the business. And I told my therapist, like, there's this fire, like actually burning. I have an actual burning sensation in the center of my body. And I have a hard time falling asleep at night because I'm so I feel this ambition that I never thought I would lose. But I, it started like dampening because I, I felt really insecure. And I felt like I didn't know how anything would ever work. And it just evaporated. And so the last year and a half has been just about rebuilding my whole life, really. So I got to make a record with that fire in my belly and that sense of like, I'm in control. I want to make a record that 
I love and want to listen to for years over and over and over again. I want to work with people that I know that I feel safe with and that like really see me and that really like I can communicate well with. And I magically found that in my band and in my producer, Joe Pazafia. And like the experience of making this third record was the most fun I have ever had being in the studio. Like I was so present and so excited. Every time I came home, I was just like jumping up and down and I still listen to it. I mean, it's been a year since we made it and I still listen to my own record like several times a week. And I don't do the thing that I've done with other things that I've made where I like mm-hmm. kind of cringe at moments. Like there's no, there's none of that. I'm just like right. so proud of it. You should be. I don't know where it's going to go. I really don't know what any of it means, but mm-hmm. I'm just so grateful that I'm here. <laughs> Me too. So I want to talk about this record a little bit because it is the happy ending to your story and a new beginning to you making music on different terms in the way you want to. Joe Pasapia is a badass who I was researching because of our conversation and he's part of Guster. He was, yeah, for like seven years. I love Guster and he produced Katie Lang and Ben Folds, Mm -hmm. which is amazing. How did you all get connected? So I saw Joe play a show at the Five Spot, which is a, a beloved little oh, yeah. like dive bar venue here in East Nashville. I saw him play like maybe three and a half years ago um, and was really blown away by him as an artist. He had a giant band on stage and there were really intricate arrangements happening, but it was also so clear, like the the vision for the music was so clear and I just thought his songwriting was perfect. Like he, he just gave me everything I wanted in a song. It was so moved and, and moved by the, the musicality and the honesty. But we didn't meet, and I had heard that he was a really amazing producer and had a really cool studio on the east side of town, but that was it. And then about a year and a half ago, I had been working with Gregory, who John had introduced me to, and I was kind of feeling like uh, I wanted to meet some more producers and and give myself the opportunity to really work with a bunch of people because I hadn't done that before. And I had in my brain, though, at the same time, like, I want to make a a record that is bold. And I, I want there to be like, electric guitars. I want like, Patty Griffin, but also David Bowie, and also Steely Dan. And I want it to be, at the same time, like, really vocally centric. I even hear, like, Paul Simon on it, Peter Gabriel. I mean, there's it's such a cool record. And his guitar, the guitar he lent to the project is so rad. He's a genius guitar player. And it's part of just... That's just because he's a genius. I think people who are really able to put that into one thing tend to be able to put it into all things. It's just Mm -hmm. them. So I was talking to a couple of different producers and then my friend 
Danica, who is a beautiful singer-songwriter, had just like sung background vocals on something that Joe had produced and she kind of became friends with him and was like, what about Joe? And I was like, you know, I've never heard anything he's produced, but I loved that show at the five spot. Yes. I'm going to try to, I'm going to talk to Joe. So she passed his number to me and Joe and I talked on the phone and immediately I was like, I love talking to this guy he asks the right questions and he's like operating at a frequency that feels really good to me. So I just kind of knew as soon as I talked to him that he was going to be the producer, but I didn't surrender to it until he and I got in a room together. And well, we, I went to his studio and we spent about five hours talking just about Buddhism and meditation and life and I had sent him some songs and I got, I sat at the piano and started playing something and he just was like, picked up a guitar and started like, just lightly playing. And it blew my mind. <laughs> I was like, what are you doing right now? Like, and I mean, it's like, you know, I don't play the guitar, so I get enamored by guitar players pretty easily. Well, I kind of play the guitar, but there was something else happening. Like his ear just went to the place that it just was so what I heard, but then elevated. The plan was I was just going to record three songs with him. And we were going to use the band that I had started playing with, which was my friend Owen Biddle on bass and my friend Jamie Dick on the drums. And it was just going to be a trio and Joe would play the guitar. And then he was like, well, we got to get Dan Nobler to engineer because he's just the best engineer and the we all like working together. So I was like, okay, so it's going to be that. And then we were like, we don't know what songs it's going to be yet, but we'll figure it out. We had this like running list of like 20, 25 songs or something that were our favorites. And then we ran into each other at the grocery store with Mike Grimes, <laughs> who owns The Basement and The Basement East. And Grimey's record store. He's an institution of Nashville, and Mike Grimes has been w- another one of those people who has really, really helped me. He's a champion, and and in times when I really felt like no one cared, he was there. Mm -hmm. Um, So I ran into Mike, and Mike was like, I was just talking to Joe over in the produce aisle about you, and we were talking about how excited we are that you guys are going to work together. And then I go and talk to Joe, and and Mike and Joe and I are talking, and then Mike leaves, and then Joe and I, we're in the turnip truck, which is the the grocery store in Nashville for like, two hours. <laughs> like, oh my and, gosh. and Joe and I just looked at each other and we were like, maybe we need to just make a whole album and not just do the three songs. We both were thinking the same thing. And, and that was kind of what, what we did. We, we booked three days and you're just kind of going with your instincts and you can tell that you're having fun on what would Jesus do? There's like laughter in the tracking room on the beginning and end of the track. And just got like, this swagger graveyard boyfriend is really funny about just like ex-relationships haunting you. I love Annie. You know that Annie has like always been one of my favorites. Your song written to Whitaker's ex-girlfriend that you're somehow able to be so sweet to both Annie and Whitaker in your appreciation for like the growth that he sustained while they were together and the fact that they're no longer so that you can be with your husband. And it's just some really 
brilliant songwriting on this. Many Moons is just one of those songs that your theme of letting go or hearkening back to that innocence of youth. And then I feel like you tie that theme in at the end of the album with letting go. So just the intention behind the whole project is just resounding. So I know that you're having fun when you made it. I'm so excited for the world to hear the whole thing. And how did you make your video for What Would Jesus Do? So when I made the record, it was 2019, and we didn't know what the coronavirus was. So this whole year has been obviously about trying to figure out how to do life in the middle of a pandemic. And what my life is, is setting up for a record and starting to put it out. So there are things that need to get made like music videos and photos. So I called on my friends. I'm self-releasing, so it's a different kind of budget too. Mm -hmm. I have made some really amazing friends in Nashville, and a lot of them are like musicians that moonlight and do other things. And that's so cool that, that we have all of these versatile, beautiful human beings around us. So my friend Caitlin, who I met on my first date with Whitaker. Oh. She was working at City Winery and we were there seeing a show in the upstairs room at City Winery, like at the second half of our first date, which was a point in the date where I think both of us had already recognized that we were going to be together. And she was our server. And then she and I ended up playing a Randy Newman, who I love, tribute show. That's amazing. She was playing cello. And then she came up to me, not at that show, but at another random show that we both happened to be at and said, hi, I don't know if you remember me, but I'm Caitlin and I want to play cello with you. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going on tour with Parker Millsap in like a month. Do you want to come? (laughs) So Caitlin and I became dear friends. She's an amazing cello player and also has a really wonderful band with her husband called Oliver the Crow. But she also is a badass videographer and she made a bunch of these backyard videos with me and it was just me and her and Whitaker like holding up you know different apparatuses to kind of make it work so for what would Jesus do I stood on top of Caitlin's car while Whitaker held a leaf blower and blew my hair so it looked cinematic and you know made me feel kind of like Beyonce but yeah, I just danced on top of a car while a leaf blower was in my face. And that's how we made the video for What Would Jesus Do? <laughs> that's what I love about it, though, is just like this self-sufficiency, making the record your way, figuring out how to put together great content that's compelling. And it shows that you're making it with people that you love. Like, I don't know that I would prefer to see you in a whole glammed out Beyonce style video with different music. This is what I most enjoy getting to witness. Honestly, you're such an inspiration. This is just very, very exciting that you've gotten to this point where this record exists now and you've really sit into the world and you've done it your way. Thank you. Well, I will have to say before the time that this podcast is out, my music video for Many Moons will have already come out. And that is the first video that is actually done legitly. So we did the backyard DIY thing 
several times in as many ways as we possibly could. And I am so proud of all that stuff. And I'm so proud of Caitlin because she, as my friend Britt likes to say, chef's kiss one. (laughs) And then it was kind of time to like make a music video for like, you know, Vivo and that whole thing. So I ended up getting to work with a videographer named Grant Clare, who is brilliant. And I am so excited that the world probably has already gotten to see it because it's my favorite video I've ever made. Where did you shoot it? We shot it in uh, East Nashville at a studio. Everybody was wearing masks and, you know, doors were open and stuff. But there was this there's this beautiful studio that um, has like a giant white kind of seamless wall. And Grant works with his hands in editing. So he makes art physically with his hands and then puts it into the videos. Like I can't really explain it better than that. But (laughs) so if that doesn't make you want to go watch it right now, then you can just wonder what the hell that means. (laughs) It's really, really cool. So excited. It's really been a joy. It's there's so much uh artistry to find in all of these different aspects beyond even just writing the songs and making the record. Right. A career is a is an art form. Absolutely, you're just the best, Gillette. I'm so Thanks, excited Maggie. for you. Everyone, make sure to go check out all your records, but especially this most recent release. It's a beautiful day, and I love you. I love you. I'm so proud of you. you. Thank, Thank you, you for being on the podcast, and I uh, look forward to celebrating all the releases that I have coming this year with you virtually. Hopefully, not all of them, but Girl, the world isn't ready. It's going to be a great year. We're going to tear it up. Yes, we are. I'm ready. Thank you so much for having me. You're a wonderful podcast host. This has been so much fun. Love you, girl. Love you. Thank you. Bye. That's a wrap. You can keep up with Gillette on her socials at Gillette Johnson. Give her new album, It's a Beautiful Day and I Love You, a listen, and go check out her own web series, Artist's Brain, where she talks to her favorite artists and gets inside their brains. And to keep up with me, my music, and my touring calendar, you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at I am Maggie Rose. Make sure to check out my new single, Do It, off my forthcoming album, Have a Seat, and keep your eyes and ears peeled for new music releasing on March 26th. You can find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash I am Maggie Rose, where you can get exclusive Salute the Songbird content, along with new music, live stream concerts, and more. You've been listening to Salute the Songbird on Osiris Media. The executive producers are Kirsten Cluthy and Brad Stratton from Osiris Media and Austin Marshall. And the show is edited and mixed by Brad Stratton. Original music by Maggie Rose. Please subscribe to Salute the Songbird on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. And if you like the show, recommend it to a friend or leave us a review so that others can join the conversation. Thanks for listening, and to close out the show, here's Many Moons from Gillette's new album, It's a Beautiful Day and I Love You.
close my eyes and all 